This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Industry Podcast Series. In these podcasts, we capture insights from some of the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They are executives, entrepreneurs, consultants, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is, like the team here at Momenta Partners, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative and we welcome your comments. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the latest Momenta podcast. My name is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner here at Momenta, and our guest today is Alan Berger, OEM CTO and business leader. Alan has over 25 years of international product development experience in the off-highway vehicle industry, including most recently as CTO at CNH Industrial. Prior to CNH, he spent nine years at Volvo Construction Equipment in progressive roles. Over the course of his career, Alan has been at the front lines as OEMs look to make their products smarter and deliver new levels of service. Today, we're going to discuss what digital transformation means for machine builders and how the next decade might play out. Thanks for joining us today, Alan. I'm really happy to be here, Leif. So let's start by, uh, if you could provide a little bit of professional background. You know, How did you get into product development and service in the, the off-road vehicle industry? And, and maybe tell us a little bit more about you know where the industry has come from and and where it where it sits today. Yeah, and and I think conveniently enough, uh, my career arc and the industry arc in in terms of services and connectivity are actually uh, quite interrelated. You know, I, I came into the uh, off the highway vehicle industry uh, through case construction equipment. Uh, it was one of my earliest management roles. And, and the role really was about bringing electronics into the construction equipment industry. It was just when electronics was flowing into the vehicle world. It was already certainly present in cars, uh, becoming more common in agricultural equipment. And then construction equipment kind of typically follows with technology. And, and, and very, that how, sorry to interrupt, uh, Alan, but that was how many years ago when that, that process started? That was in the late 90s. Okay. Thank you. And, and very quickly from there, uh, we went from let's start putting some electronics into these products to facilitate certain functions on the product to what's a technology roadmap. On that technology roadmap, we had connectivity telematics. And, and and we actually could see some value in that, but we also at that very moment couldn't see a way to do it in a economically viable way. So we sat there and watched the economics for a few years. We finally found a, a partner that would work with us and could get enough volume leverage to get the cost picture right. And so we actually put together one of the very first fleet management systems, uh, almost basically 20 years ago, launching it. Wow. Um, from from there, you know, I, I went a uh, few other places, but then came back into the uh, off-highway vehicle industry. And really, at that point, we made the transition from 
OEMs, technologists, understanding the technology, seeing the value and being able to explain it to a customer if you showed it to them, to customers starting to really see it and start to pull the technology. And that's sure. all evolved from there into not just about managing the fleet, which is what all these early systems were about, but into customer applications as well in the most recent uh, systems I've been involved in. Hi, so that's that's in the last few years, is that where we've gotten yes. to that point? Yes, exactly. And I imagine the cost picture has, has changed dramatically over the years. It has, um, as has the value picture. You know, early on, customers really were skeptical. They and, and they could only see the value if you showed it to them, uh, held their hand through it. But now, particularly when you get into helping them with the work they do and not just with managing the fleet of vehicles, uh, they, they have a much better picture of value and, and therefore actually uh, uh, can see their way to spending more on such systems. Right. And, and are you, uh, you know, are, are, are companies in the industry, I should say, um, charging customers for this additional value? Is that, a, is that an upcharge or is that part of the service contract? How does that work? Uh, so there's a number of models out there, and it's still very common that some level of service is provided for one, two, three years with the product uh, as part of the cost of the product. And, and that's typically done just to get the customers to start to use it and understand it as we're still in an adoption curve. Uh, typically, these add-on capabilities, these more connected to your end application things that are charged for. And, and if you think about the industry as a whole, what would you say the percentage of customers are taking advantage of this? At the... At, I mean, just in general, I mean, is it, is it uh, roughly speaking, is it, is it a quarter, is it a half, is it three quarters? What, what percentage of or, or portion of our customers in this industry is taking advantage of of the data and the additional services that the data can provide. I think it's still relatively low, probably in the quarter, maybe at most half range. There's still quite a bit to go in terms of adoption. Gotcha. Gotcha. Very interesting. And so what 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 would you say the next decade looks like for for vehicle OEMs and the and the broader ecosystem of of partners, distributors, customers, and and how do you see digital technology playing a role in these various sectors? And is there going to be some divergence or changes in the industry as a result of that? Will there be winners and losers? How do you see it playing out over the next decade? Yeah. So one thing I think is important is this is really an evolution. As I, as I already mentioned, to some degree, these systems have been and services have been around for 20 years already, and it's still working its way up an adoption curve. Uh, one of the things about off-highway vehicle applications typically is a, it's a fairly conservative industry. Uh, that said, even though it's a bit of an evolution, it doesn't mean that there won't be some fairly dramatic changes when you look at the end. It's just they're going to come a little more slowly. And things I'm thinking about here 
include the continued commoditization of the machinery itself. You know, to some degree, these services can provide productivity benefits that are much greater than you can generate by improving the machinery itself. Machinery is critical. Uh, you know, one of the things about off-highway equipment in particular, and we're talking mostly here agricultural equipment uh, and construction equipment, is the physical machinery is needed to do the job. And, and there's not really a substitute for that for the most part. I'd say that's 80% true. We still uh, live in a physical world, don't we? Yeah, that's exactly. reality. Exactly. And it's doing physical work. You can't just yeah. digitize that, um, even though you could evolve technologies behind that. Um, so it won't go away. But if you can generate more productivity through that data-driven service, then the profits are going to flow to those that are, gen that are creating those services and away from the vehicles. And this is not a theoretical business school discussion. It's been happening, and there are already products in that industry that are commoditized. Yeah, that's 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 interesting. It seems to be common across a lot of industries. Do you see in this in this uh, you know off-road vehicle industry similar dynamics or similar scenarios that you that that get talked about? I don't think we're there yet. In say the airline industry, where they talk about you know basically selling jet engines as power by the hour, or in utilities, where they talk about selling gas turbines in a power by the hour uh, scenario, is that you know is, it, is there a usage model that plays out at some point here? You know the discussion. I think it's similar in, in off highway. The discussion is there. There are customers and OEMs experimenting a little bit with this. You know, the capability is largely there. It, it shifts risk around, uh, and it certainly uh, impacts the capital structure of the industry significantly in terms of who owns the assets. Right, right. That's uh, maybe an evolving picture. So what, uh, you know, that, that's a good segue into defining, you know, the types of organizations that will um, well do well. You know, what, what in your experience, what kind of, Organizations have responded well to the introduction, maybe both on the the OEM side and the customer side, because I think you've you've sat in between that uh, to the threat of digital disruption, um, and which ones haven't responded well. So, in, in terms of their characteristics, I'm I'm not looking for, you know, companies, but you know the characteristics of organizations that do well and those that don't do well. Exactly. So, so one thing I think it's important is uh, everyone in the industry, I think, has has read the Innovators' Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. I know you talked about it on your last podcast. Everyone knows about the risk of disruption. So, I don't think any major player in the value chain is not paying attention and not trying to do something. That said, there are differences. Uh, the larger players are fully engaged. Some of the smaller players are not as engaged. So, so there is a distribution in terms of who's working harder and, and who's just trying to 
play along, I'd say. And by working harder, I mean really trying to watch where could they be disrupted? Where is the value moving? Do they need to transform the business to uh, to follow that value? Yeah, that's that's interesting. Is is working hard harder enough though? I mean, I you know, we see in in other sectors companies that have, have worked hard, so to speak, such as GE and, and others, investing in digital technology, and it hasn't always gone the right way. So is there uh, is is that enough or do companies also have to look at how they they're uh, they're structured and and how they um, how they approach this whole arena of digital technology. Uh, that's a that's a great point, you know. And, and certainly, there's a degree of work harder or work smarter, or maybe both. And it's not the case, from my perspective, that if you need to be completely vertically integrated and build your entire digital platform yourself uh, as a player somewhere in this value chain, I think what you need to do is figure out where value is moving, what is really going to drive productivity or drive a close connection to places where as an OEM you're already making most of your money uh, and you're uniquely positioned to capture that value if you make the right moves and own those pieces. Gotcha. And then probably it's better to go and acquire the other pieces, uh, if you can, from people who, where that's their lifeblood. Right, right. No, that's a good point. I think there's a, there is a tendency or a desire to um, to own it all, I guess, is that's, uh, that's one of the challenges, right? Do it all. There can be, especially in the noise of everyone trying to find their place in the industry, I, there's, there's certainly a desire for control. Uh, and you do need the industry structure to shake out, take itself out a little bit, which I think is really happening right now. So what, that's, 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 yeah, so we are going to see some structural changes. That's interesting. On an industry-wise basis, do you think that, that companies themselves have to be structured differently, to your point, um, uh, to your reference to Clayton Christensen and and the, the innovator's dilemma, is there is do traditional organizational structures support innovation? Uh, can they support innovation, or do you have to approach innovation uh, differently? And and does that have an impact on on how the organization is structured? Yes, there's a lot in there. Life. Uh, first, I think I want to expand the comment about structure. Because I think a lot of people hear that word structure and they get obsessed with who reports to who. And while that's not unimportant, it's one tool in terms of how the organization runs. So really, you have the organizational structure, the processes that people use in that organization, and the governance or the decision-making mechanism. Of those three, I think actually the physical structure, who reports to who, is probably the weakest of the tools. Um, so if you look at that entire space, um, I think one, most of these, if you look at the OEMs, you look at their larger suppliers, they've been doing innovation for a long time. 
So they have some way to do that through their systems and things like that. Uh, so it's not that they can't innovate, but what the digital system and the connectivity brings is this connection from an, a vehicle, which is where they're used to innovating, to services via some sort of cellular satellite, something like that connection in that what sometimes is called offboard side of the system is unique. They, uh, these companies are not used to innovating there into operating there and not used to such a tight connection between those points. So here, I think companies are really struggling to uh, find the right structure. And I actually don't know that any of them have really found that correctly. Yeah, I think that's probably true, at least in our experience across a range of industries. Let's let's take a, a hypothetical company in this industry, um, and say, you know, one that is, you know, like most companies, you know, fairly rigid and, and change resistant. What is the first thing that needs to be done to to make progress and create a more agile, you know, culture? And, and what's the second thing? So on. So in other words, what is a you know, in your from your perspective, what what do companies have to do? What is what are the steps they need to take to to get to a, a, a more agile culture? So the good thing about this kind of change is it's not really different than any other major change activity, and I think the we'll call it standard science behind change management does apply which starts with creating that compelling vision, that need uh, from the very top of the company. If the top of the company is not committed to this, it won't happen, especially to the point I said just before where you need to create new pathways in the company that uh, haven't been there in uh, really any industrial company. So you need to do that. You need to create the need. You need to be able to explain to all of your stakeholders why things need to be different to the point we talked about earlier. Uh, I think this commoditization risk and the value moving around in the value chain uh, really creates that story for you. Then you really need to get some thought leaders that buy into this to quickly start demonstrating some success and show that something can be done. Uh, this company can succeed in a new space and then leverage that, talk about that and leverage that into getting more of the organization a little more excited and then get more successes and kind of build it up. So you're kind of spiraling out into the broader part of the organization, getting everyone a little more on board. And I think doing this all without being prescriptive about truly where you're going, because I think you need significant agility uh, to see what works, learn from it, and change as you go. And, and that's a at least a much faster learning cycle than a typical industrial company is used to. Right. That's that's interesting. That's uh, you know, there's a, a a professor actually a, a collaborator with with Clayton Christensen, Rita McGrath out of Columbia University. It talks about the concept of, of business leaders needing to um, embrace the concept of optionality, 
uh, when a decision is made that you need to uh, you need to uh, be aware that there are other options there, right? There's other strategies that may be better, and so you constantly have to be thinking about that. So uh, I think that ties into what you're saying. Is and it's not necessarily a a boil the ocean scenario. It's it's an iterative thing. Exactly, exactly. And and it doesn't mean you can't use some of your traditional processes, but you shouldn't over plan. Right. Yeah, good point. So let's still drill a little bit deeper into uh, some of the technology aspects and specifically about data and, and the role of data in the whole, the different types of data. You know, we, I think we conflate sometimes, or certainly the outside world conflates, um, the kind of data that's typically ingested by a Google or an Amazon or a Facebook versus the kind of data that we find in the, the industrial world. And I think there's a greater degree of diversity of types of data uh, in the industrial world, and, and, and that creates its own challenges. What are your thoughts? Is one type of data more important than the other, you know, condition data versus, you know, sort of the maintenance history or service history? Um, and, 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 and are there any issues in this industry with um, ownership of that data? Because some of that data comes from the operators, the owner operators, and some of it comes from the, the OEMs. And so, you know, who, uh, who ultimately owns it? Does it really matter? Um, and, uh, you know, how does that play out going forward? Yeah, so maybe I'll work backwards here and talk about that ownership piece first. I think in the vehicle industry, uh, this is reasonably well settled at this point. It's one of the few things that I think is stabilizing. So the data is generated on the vehicle or maybe by other systems that are connected into your system. Uh, this is the customer's data. And it's up to the customer to decide who has access to it. Typically, the customer is granting the service provider, we'll say in this case, the machine OEM, uh, access to that data, at least in aggregate, in return for services. Part of those services is actually just creating the, a way to get to the data. So data travels from the machines, typically through a cellular or satellite connection, into a cloud service somewhere and present, is presented back to the customer uh, with some processing, turning it from data into information. So generally, they're granting access to it in, in that process. And, and when you, going back to where you started in terms of the types of data, importance of data, it really, I think, depends on who you are. The way I look at it is really three major categories. There's a set of data that is about the machine itself, its health. Uh, and here the vehicle OEM is typically the one best positioned to transform that data into information and inform the owner of maintenance needs or possibly an impending uh, repair. There is fleet kinds of data, and this is mostly about where is the equipment, how maybe how is it being used. And this, of course, would be most interesting to the 
the owner of the collection of vehicles, uh, possibly the service providing entity, typically dealerships, so they can help find the vehicles and uh, and maybe go plan that service and do service uh, when they know the equipment is not going to be used and where it is. And then finally, data about what the machine is doing, the operation it's doing. So if you are, uh, the easiest example here maybe is in the agricultural space. This would be about how is that vehicle performing? If you're harvesting, what kinds of yields are you getting? If you're planting, where did you plant? What did you plant? Um, and, and that, of course, can then be combined with data from other sources, say satellite imaging or something like that, uh, to help the farmer see how uh, how he's doing, how his practices are working, and, and what needs attention. So they all have value. They're all important at their own point in time and to the uh, to the right person. Got you. Got you. Well, this is this has been great. Um, you know, maybe just to wrap it up, you know, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about where we go from here. Um, how are the different scenarios playing out? So taking out your crystal ball again and and maybe any even some of the characteristics of, of potential or hypothetical winners and losers. Where where what are some of the scenarios going forward? There, there's a couple of different dimensions here that I, I like to think about. One, I think there is a ongoing debate in the industry uh, being played out, not necessarily discussed, but played out uh, between open and closed platform models. You can think Apple versus Android more or less. Uh, certain players in the industry are trying to be more open, which means they would allow uh, customers more choice, maybe more third parties to connect into the system and, and provide value in their own way, maybe bringing data, maybe just doing processing of the data that's in the system versus more closed solutions where the OEM controls who exactly uh, how that happens and basically is the main interface and won't allow a third party to have its own interface, its own uh, image and direct connection to the customer. So I think that needs to play out. Uh, I would tend to say Open's more likely to win here, but we'll see. Uh, you certainly couldn't count Apple out when you when you talk about that, but there's different characteristics here than uh, than there is just in uh, the cell phone world. Yeah, there's less of the certainly less of the consumer privacy issues, which which Apple plays for sure. And and finally, uh, Alan. You know, we, we love to end with uh, getting your thoughts on uh, good books to read or other resources for our audience. Uh, so, you know, anything that uh, you're reading now and think is value in the context of business and digital technology? Yeah, and I, here I go down a, a different path and not so specifically digital, uh, but I found a, a really fascinating book called The Future is Asian by Parag Hanna. And this book really, I think for those of us in the West, helps reset your thinking about the role of Asia in the long-term history of the world, uh, where it's largely been dominant for most of time. 
and how Asia is really positioned to restore that 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 relative positioning in the world. And I think it's for any business leader uh, important perspective. I think if you sit in the West too long, you you lose that perspective. Yeah, it's a very different world, isn't it? Exactly. Well, great. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for sharing your thoughts today. Um, it's much appreciated, Alan. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. This is Leif Erickson, Insights Partner Memento. Thank you for listening today, and please share with us what you found useful, as well as your own perspectives on digital industry.